Heavenly Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. And we remember, Lord, all that our Savior has done on our behalf. And even now, as you have instructed through your servant, uh, that we would deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would be at work within us, motivating us, drawing us ever to you, the one who has reconciled us to you. We pray for this time this morning that we would have hearts made ready by your Spirit to hear and follow wherever you might lead. Again, we pray all of this in the name of our Redeemer. Amen. Throughout the book of Titus, we've seen the way in which Paul instructs his friend and protege to establish the church. And he does so by having him appoint elders. In, in all the cities. And as he's establishing the church, we recognize that, that the purpose for this is kind of twofold. Well, it's, it's really one, one purpose, but it's in two directions. And that purpose is to, to resist ungodly influence. Um, and, and for those in Crete, there were two primary targets. The first would be those of the circumcision, that is to say Jewish people who are upsetting whole households, they're teaching what is false. And the elders that that Titus was to install was to push against that. We see also a rather harsh description of Cretan culture, and we understand that the elder was to push against the culture. For what purpose? So that the church would be established. So that the church would grow by the power of the Spirit in obedience to the Lord and provide a testimony, a witness to those who do not believe. As we look at these verses, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, we see Paul continue the same line of thinking. And I have to say, as a a pastor, one of the great privileges is to spend time in God's Word wrestling with the text, but then seeing how the Lord brings about good and right purposes for His Word in each generation. And let me explain. You know, we understand that Paul... uh, wrote nearly 2,000 years ago. We, we recognize that whatever the spiritual conditions on Crete now, they are not likely to be the same as were there 2,000 years ago. You know, there are different factors that would, would be distracting for God's people there. In the same way, we recognize that we don't live in Crete. And we recognize that there are influences and... In, 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 um, Temptations for God's people in our day to go on to many different directions. Nonetheless, we see that Paul's instructions to us through Titus would be the same for his own. They would be the same for Titus as he's ministering. That is to say, establish the church by appointing faithful men as elders. So that the the outcome of that would be that that they're pushing against the culture. As we look at these verses, as we seek to apply them to our lives, 
as we seek to understand what Paul's purpose is, we need to remember the Lord Jesus, our great God and Savior who has saved us, who has redeemed us, and who has been revealed to us that we know him, that his action has purpose for us. As we remember that, we need to follow him, living fearlessly. And the way we're able to do that is we look to his return. These verses, 11 through 15, Paul writes as a grounds to to the verses that precede them, what we looked at last week. That is to say that this is part of the justification for why you are to live in the particular ways he enumerated in the previous text. And the fundamental grounding is that God's grace has appeared to all. Now, I think, as I, as I think about God's grace appearing, I think of uh, Ezekiel 37. It is perhaps one of the most powerful pictures of God's grace coming and its effects in the world. Now, we read uh, verses 11 through 14, but the, the story of, of Ezekiel 37 begins, obviously, a few verses before. And there, the Lord takes Ezekiel, his prophet, out to the, this, this dry land, and he sees a whole bunch of dry bones. Now, just, you know, one of the things you learn in high school biology is that without water, life doesn't really exist. Even if with our own bodies, if, if something is not wet, it's not working quite right. Um, if, you, if you want a, a fun example of that, stick your tongue out, not right now, stick your tongue out, dry it with a piece of paper towel, and then have somebody put either sugar or salt on your tongue. If it's dry, you won't be able to taste it. But when you pull your tongue in, it'll be a big surprise, right? We understand that, that water is necessary for life. So Ezekiel is brought out to this place uh, that is, I mean, he's surrounded by death. Not only is the land dry, the bones are dry. These aren't, you know, people that are sick. These aren't, you know, people that are hurt. These are people that are dead. Dead as a doornail dead, right? And then the Lord says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel... Uh, in a, you know, hedging his bets, gives what might be the best answer to the Lord in all of Scripture. So if you're ever asked by the Lord, you might think about this. He says, oh Lord, you know. <laughs> and then what happens, what, what follows is that the Lord says to Ezekiel, speak over these bones, speak my words over these bones. And he says, bones, rise up. Come together, be clothed, and then that's what happens. The bones live. What we see in in verses 11 through 14 is the climax of that. Where, Where God is saying to Ezekiel, these bones represent all of Israel. That are dead, that have no hope. But when God's grace appears to them, when his word comes to them, They are made alive. That is what it means. That's that's the idea that Paul has in his, his head as he's saying that God's grace has appeared to all. Now, you'll you'll hear some that talk about how uh, God's grace appearing to all is a definite reminder that 
that Paul has in view everybody, meaning free people and slaves, because we see that in the, in the previous text, and I think that that's good and right, but we also need to remember the people that are present on the island of Crete who might cause trouble, and that is to say, we know that there are people who are of the circumcision. And in Paul's language, that's kind of code for Jewish people. And we know as we look at, at all of Paul's letters that the presence of Jewish people often caused a source of conflict or division. What do I mean? What does that look like? Well, well, what would happen is that Paul would preach the gospel and then he would leave and then other people who were Jewish would come and they would say, well, Paul, in order to, well, don't listen to Paul. They'd say, in order to become Christian, you have to become Jewish first. And Paul, throughout his letters as he addresses this, communicates that this isn't an okay thing. In Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 he says this, I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting him, that's Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So whatever these Judaizers are, are, are saying, it's a different gospel. He goes on to say, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He goes on to describe that they are to be accursed if they preach a, a gospel other than what he has preached. And you know, we, we, we are tempted kind of to say, well, boy, it must have been really bad. What could they possibly been saying? Well, in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 of Galatians, he says this. He kind of fleshes that idea out a bit. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit, of, spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In short, as I said, there are people upsetting the Galatian people by saying, before you become a Christian, before you understand the whole grace of Jesus thing, you need to first keep the law. I think that's what's going on in Crete, in part. I think that's what it meant for those who are of the circumcision, who are upsetting whole households and, and, and teaching what is false for sordid gain. That's what Paul is writing about. In order to be a Christian, you first must become Jewish. And by saying that the gospel is revealed to all, he's saying no. Jew, Gentile, it makes no difference. All, by God's grace, can come and receive the grace of Christ. As someone who is a Gentile, I, I stand here, I say yes and amen. But we need to recognize in this that there's a, a potential danger um, for us today. Not necessarily that we have roving groups of Jewish people who are trying to make Christians become Jewish before they're Christian. That, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that this world is full of people who say, yes, follow Christ, but before you do that, come do this first. We see it, uh, it's almost in the vein of, of self-help. And, and I want to be clear here, there are some self-help things that are good and right. I am sure that if I tried to fix my car, I would probably need whatever self-help 
mechanic do-it-yourself when you should have listened to your mechanic book that I can find, right? I don't work on my car. There's a reason for that. It would be in pieces, a lot of them, and I couldn't put them back. Um, but we understand that, that there's, there's a sense in which instructional material helps and can make my life more effective. But when that comes to how we understand who the Lord is or who the Lord has called us to be, we need to be very, very careful. Because we see that there are all kinds of examples where people say, I can help you come to know the Lord in a more intimate way. Just do what I say. My favorite negative example of this is a, is a book that came out Ooh, maybe 15 to 20 years ago at this point, uh, it was, it's by a man named John Eldridge, and it's called Wild at Heart. And to be fair, uh, the indications are that he's a, a believer, but, but within this book, um, he basically sets out to say, well, you know, man was made wild and free, and he's been domesticated. And so, in order for man to really understand who God is and who the Lord has called him to be, he kind of needs to regain his wildness. Now, I'm not saying that our culture hasn't said things about masculinity that are unhelpful and that we don't need to, to understand that. But if I were to follow the logic of the book, I really wouldn't be a man in God's eyes until I was covered in war paint and was running half naked through the woods. And that's just not helpful uh, for lots of reasons. But nonetheless, you know, retreats are sold. People come, Christian people come, and they're told, if you want to be a Christian, do this. Which goes far beyond the pages of the scriptures. And we need to say no. You know, the scriptures are sufficient for us. As we think about this valley of dry bones, right? As we think about uh, the way in which God's grace appears and brings new life, we need to remember that that same new life comes to us. And so then as we think about those external sources, those external, hey, come do this first in, in order to understand the gospel, we need to say, hang on. The grace of God is sufficient for me. That doesn't mean that God doesn't use published materials to help us know Him better, but we need to be careful how we address them. And if our, our first, um, if, if, the, if the first instruction is to do something outside of the Scriptures, we need to say no. But we recognize that in Crete, Paul is not merely communicating against the Judaizers. He's not merely communicating against those that are saying you have to be Jewish first. He has a, there's a, there's a wider culture that has rejected the gospel. And it's not a uh, well-ordered culture. We, we see in chapter 1 verse 12, they're described as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons by one of their own. And as Paul says, that's, that's accurate, that's fair. So we know that there is a presence on Crete that is hostile to the gospel, uh, that would reject the gospel just by virtue of, of cultural influence. And Paul is saying we need to push against that. And we might wonder how we do that. 
Uh, here again, you know, Ezekiel described the dry bones coming to life, right? We also recognize that Paul elsewhere, and here we read it in 2 Corinthians 5, talks about how um, you know, he who had been dead in his sin, like the dry bones, all of a sudden becomes alive, and he describes himself as a new creation or a new creature, and he now has moved, because of the love of God, from the one who is far from the Lord to the one who follows the Lord. What's going on? Well, God's Spirit ha- has been revealed to him. You know, the Lord has called Paul to himself, and he's moved from death to life. And the result here, and this is the way in which he, he's calling uh, the Cretan people to push against the, the culture, is that as he's moved from death to life, he's motivated by the Spirit to follow the Lord wherever he leads. This carries with it the same application for us today that it carried for Titus. Just as Titus was called to establish these churches, to, to, to raise up men, to push against the culture, so too must we. And we see then in verse, uh, of chapter 2, verse 12, um, Paul's understanding of what that looks like. This is what he says. Uh, this is again to Titus, that he is to be instructing, or, or, sorry, that the, the grace of God has come and is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That is the antidote for the evil Lazy, lying culture. Is it the antidote for our own? It is. You know, throughout this time, I've kind of continued to say that we're to be pushing against the culture, in fact, for the past couple weeks. And, And there are a number of ways in which we could think about how we are to push back against the culture. And today, I'm going to walk through three related issues and how we, we can push back through them. So given that there's three, it's going to take just maybe more than a minute, but it's important for us to think as we engage with, with our culture. And the first kind of is, um, comes to the forefront again in that it's been a year, the first anniversary since the death of George Floyd. Now, while the circumstances of his death deserve a deeper discussion on their own, what I want to look at is some of the cultural influences that have happened in the last year that have gripped our society. And I'm speaking here of racism. How do I understand it? I mean, we understand, I think, that racism is a significant sin, you know, this, this, the, the word racist or racism doesn't appear in the Scriptures exactly, but it comes to us in the Scriptures under the sin of partiality. And we need only look at the Scriptures in a casual way to understand that the sin of partiality is severe and the Lord's feelings about it. That's why we call it the sin of partiality, not the grace of partiality. I mean, we, so we know that, that the sin of partiality exists, and because it exists, to some degree, we need to be concerned with it. We understand that. As we think about our own history, we think about um, 
the Civil War. We think about uh, the, the sin of, of partiality that is, has existed within our society. I then, you know, am told by the culture at large that uh, this is an issue. And so I have to examine my own heart. What are the, the attitudes that I have to those who are ethnically or racially different to me? Am I partial in my dealings? And it's all well and good for me to say that I am not. It's all well and good for me to say that I do what I can to treat others equally. But the, soci- the society in which I live is telling me now that there are two types of people. There are oppressors and the oppressed. And as a man who is white and middle class, I am in the oppressor group. So that means that my ability to to look at my own thoughts and my own hearts and, and determine how I care for other people, that is compromised. Because I am by nature of being white and male and middle class, an oppressor. So I'm not allowed to speak as to whether I have been guilty of the sin of partiality. That's disturbing. We'll, we'll come back to that. It continues though, because it doesn't just show up within regard to, to partiality along racial lines or, or ethnic lines. We also recognize that this shows itself with regard to LGBTQ issues. Now, again, here I, I, I say as a, as a Christian, I feel like I need to be conscientious of others. And I, and I, and I think about, well, you know, it is true that God calls us to love all people. And, and it is true that God um, loves all people himself. And, and so then, you know, you, you know I'm told or I, I'm, I'm, I'm told that because I'm to use the language of the day cisgendered, that means I'm a man trapped in a man's body, that it means I'm a man. Uh, that I'm an oppressor and I can't talk on these issues because all of my thoughts and all of my actions have been spent supporting oppression. And I look at that and I say, well, how am I to respond? I I mean, here again, I, I want to be a conscientious person. I'm called to be a conscientious person. I'm called to disadvantage myself for the sake of those who, who are marginalized in society. Is this a good thing? Shouldn't I be pursuing that? I'm tempted to adopt that way of thinking. People within churches, denominations, individuals all across our country are wrestling with that. And they're saying, you know what? In order to to engage with those who don't know Christ, those who who might fall into a different race or ethnicity, those who who might fall somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, I I need to root out this sin within me so that I can love them and talk to them about Jesus. That's the temptation. And I use the word temptation for a simple reason. There's no end to it. There's no end to it. What do I mean? I'll give you the the last example. 
On August 4th of 2020, uh, Lori Rubel, or Rubel, I, I apologize if I've mispronounced the name, was a math education professor in New York City and tweeted this, along with the, the of course math is neutral because 2 plus 2 equals 4 trope are the related and creepy, math is pure and protect math. This reeks of white supremacist patriarchy and I'd rather think on nurturing people by protecting the planet with math in service of these goals. What this math teacher is saying is that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is now part of the racist patriarchy. How do we respond to that? How can we respond to that? Well, naturally, as a white man, I can't respond to it. But what is going on here? By setting the, the world up in terms of oppressors and oppressed, our culture is saying all of reality must be seen through this grid. And if you're an oppressor, get out of the way because we're changing everything, literally everything. So that 2 plus 2 can't equal 4 anymore. And I, I mean, I literally, I look at my hands and I say, but 2 plus 2, how's it not 4? So how should we respond? Well, to, to each of these three, I think we need to respond in, in somewhat different ways. Um, based on, on um, what we see in hand. To the, to the one who says... Um, you know, two plus two is four is now a racist fact. <laughs> Quite honestly, um, Proverbs 17.10 comes to mind. And that says, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. I don't know how to respond. There's nothing more I can say. If you have come to the point where just basic understandings of reality, including what we see before us, reeks of racism... I can have a conversation, but I know it's not going to be productive. And so at some point, I just have to say, that's not true. It is true that 2 plus 2 is 4, and we move on. That's what we have to do. But what about those that are on the LGBTQ spectrum? I mean, how do we respond? First, with love and kindness. Why? Because we're talking to people who are made in the image of God. We're talking to people that we need to show that the, the dignity commiserate with that creation, right? We need to also recognize that what's going on is that in our culture, we are making the decision of sexual preference to be part of our identity, so that means that if you identify as gay, if that's your sexual preference, you say, no, 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 no. This isn't just a fact about me. It is who I am. So if somebody comes to you and says that they think that that is wrong, you're not just disagreeing with them like, no, I prefer to have Chinese food for dinner instead of this. Rather, it's a violent act because you're saying you don't exist in a meaningful way. 
That's why we see such hostility toward those who speak out against LGBTQ issues. How should we respond? Well, we, we need to tell the truth. Just like with 2 plus 2 equals 4, we need to tell the truth here as well. And we need to say, listen, we are people of the book. This is sufficient for our lives. It doesn't mean that, that this is comprehensive. Rather, it means that this is sufficient for all that we need to know with regard to our standing before the Lord. And it tells me that that is wrong. It tells me that that is sin. And then to follow it up quickly by saying, that doesn't mean I don't love you or care for you. It just means that you are a sinner in exactly the same way I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace. What about the sin of partiality with regard to ethnic lines or, or racial lines? Well, here again, we need to understand that it is a real sin. But how are we to understand how we deal with it? Again, if we, if we try to do so against, uh, in the lines of oppressed people and oppressors, we'll end up eventually at 2 plus 2 can equal 4. How do we do it? Well, first, we recognize that it's a sin of the heart. So we do have to look within our own hearts. We have to, to understand uh, our sinful motivations and our good motivations. And we have to pray that the Lord would be gracious to us to, to help us see the sin that remains and to root it out. But we also understand... We have to understand that as we think about this sin that is present, again, if it is based upon the lines of oppressor and oppressed, I can't ever get out of it because I'm always going to be part of the oppressor group. That is not what the scriptures say. The scriptures describe those who are dead in their sin and made alive by God's spirit, made alive by the blood of Christ that has forgiven them of sin. So that, that when you're forgiven, when you call upon the name of the Lord, the sin is no longer a part of you. You're not defined by it. That also is our call and our prayer to those who fit into these examples who don't want to hear the gospel. This is our, our call, our, our prayer for those who, who are apart from the Lord. What, you know, maybe it's a, a person in your family. Maybe, maybe it is something that you yourself struggle with. If this is where you are, we recognize that the Lord meets people where they are all the time. He doesn't leave them there, but He meets them there. And that by His Spirit, like in the wilderness with Ezekiel, He breathes new life into us. So the prayer then is that that is what happens in our wider society as well as with the individuals we know. What if they don't want to hear it? They likely won't. I mean, we're, we're in the midst of a, a cancel culture. We're in the midst of, of, of um, more, more pandemics than just COVID. It, it, you know, this cancel culture where if you don't agree with someone, you just cut them off. How, how are we to, to navigate those waters, recognizing that if we speak the truth, if we speak the word of God, 
it likely means the end of a reputation or the end of an opportunity to work in a particular way or, or a livelihood. How do we move forward? I think Paul gives us the answer to this in Titus 2. He says in verse 13, and I'll read 13 and 14, he says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then reminding us of what Jesus has done, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. How are we enabled as God's Spirit works within us? How can we have boldness to proclaim the truth, even if it is going to be difficult? Twofold. First, we remember Christ. We remember what He has done. And that He is making for Himself a people. His own possession. And two, we need to recognize what it says in 13. The blessed hope and the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior. We remember that Jesus is returning. We remember that the difficulties of the, the, this current time when we are trying to push against a culture that wants no part to do with us. Even if life becomes difficult as we push against that culture, we are to be encouraged as we know and understand that Christ is coming back. How does Paul describe it in 2 Corinthians 3? He says this, momentary light afflictions. And let's be clear, momentary light afflictions never feel, never feel momentary and they never feel light. But momentary light afflictions are producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It is the understanding that at Christ's return, the difficulties go away. At Christ's return, we, we spend all of our days forever with Him in worship and in peace. And that's what enables us now to live for Him by His power. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, recognizing that we can do nothing apart from your love and mercy. Lord, you have uh, revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. And there we see the Lord Jesus who is revealed by your spirit in our lives and makes us alive. We who are dead have been made alive. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work within ours, that, that your word, your holy scriptures would be our sufficient source of understanding of who you are and who you have called us to be. And we pray, Lord, that your, your spirit speaking through your scriptures would embolden us to proclaim the truth of your gospel far and wide. And again, we pray all of this in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.